another episode of the Gospel Lifeline Podcast. My name is Neil Grogan. I'm here with Matthew Statler. And man, I'm glad we didn't record last week, you know, but I'm glad to see you again, Matt. It looks like you're uh you're making it, you're surviving, you're enduring all that summer has put in front of you. Yeah, it's not been too too hot here. Um yeah, several days in the over a hundreds. Um but you know, Phoenix has been like 117, 118. Uh, Good I think, grief. I think they broke the record last year of like 60 or 50 days of over 115 degree weather uh, in Phoenix. But here down in Sierra Vista, we've been uh, in the high 90s and hundreds, which is kind of unusual for this part of Arizona because of our elevation. Uh, so it's mm. been a little bit, a little bit hot, a little bit uncomfortable, but. It kind of feels like we're in Satan's throne room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For us, man, it's just, it's thick and humid. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, let's, let's get back on to what, what we're at tasks today to do. And I thought it might be a good, good thing to establish and just ask the question of, um, man, Matt, what do you think the greatest accusation the world makes against Christians is that we're all handsome and beautiful or I think at least, I think at least in America or in the Western world, it's, um, inauthenticity or, Mm. or better yet hypocrite, right? Ooh, hypocrisy, a hypocrite. You're a, you're a hypocrite. You don't actually believe that, or you believe that for some, reason like you want power or you want to yeah. uh, hold someone down or sure. you just you you use it to hide your bigotry um yeah and so you th- it's seem a- to be different than who you actually are right yeah there's some some uh i mean and we know what the word hypocrite comes from the the greek with the masks and the actor. Uh, the actor right the actor would put on a face to act mm-hmm. out a part and um I think I think that's a valid accusation for a lot of mm. Christians, and um, whether it's intentional or not, that is definitely something that comes across. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, and I, I think uh, all Christians are kind of picking up on that. Or if they're not, well, you should. Here's here's a foot stomper for you. But uh, you know, as I was thinking about the hypocrisy that's or accusation that's leveled against the church, I. I wondered if anybody had done any research on that. So I got online as one does and checked out Barna research group. And, you know, they actually did a study Matt, where they had asked a bunch of young non Christians. So I think that the millennial generation uh, primarily and asked them some questions because they wanted to kind of get to the root of like, like to what extent is this accusation that Christians are hypocrites true? So they were trying to nail down, like, how much um, do Christians portray the attitudes and actions of Jesus uh, if we were to ask unbelievers several questions? So they asked a bunch of unbelievers and and 84 percent of the young non-Christians they asked said they knew a Christian personally. So they had a Christian in their life who they know uh, on a, on a close level, but only 15% of that 84% said those Christians, um, lived in a way that was 
you know, positive, right? Like they're, that they viewed positively because they actually acted and, and talk like Jesus. So that, you know, that means 85% of all those other believers that they knew, you know, they didn't see in a positive light because their attitudes and actions did not reflect what they say they believe. And I think, man, this is, this is a fundamental issue in the church at large today. And to clarify, Neil, we, we do know that the world will hate us. Yes. Right. We, we recognize that and right. people are going to disagree with the fundamentals of our faith, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But what this is pointing to is not that they disagree with the tenets of Christian faith, but they disagree yeah. with um, how the person is living. They're saying one thing and doing another. Um, and yeah. I think, and I think that's what we want to emphasize. It's not that the world hates us or likes us because we know they will hate us. But it's right. it's that there's a, a disconnect between who we are and who we say we are. Yeah. And I think on top of that, too, it's like you either look just like me if I'm an unbeliever. And so what's the point of following Jesus? Because you and I act the same, you know, or, um, you know, those Christians over there are judgmental, self-righteous fools, you know, so I have no desire you know that that's uh, <laughs> that that's a badly seasoned. They've they've cooked the garlic too long. It's become bitter. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking about food. We're getting yeah, close to lunch time. Food. But but this really this principle I think is going to take us into into our study today. We're continuing in the book of Revelation, um, picking back up with the church in Pergamum, which is a if you ever get an opportunity to see this place, I mean, it is an incredible place. Um, it will blow your mind. And they have virtual mm-hmm. tours too. If you know, yeah. you can't afford to get to Turkey. Yep. Yep. Yeah, virtual t- tours are the way of the future, I suppose. I suppose. Um, I suppose. So let's do this. Let's Matt, let's start with like, what is Pergamum? Like where, like what, what's the big deal with this town? Because Jesus seems to, uh, have some strong things to say about this city. Like he calls it Satan's throne room. So, uh, what's the deal with this city? Well, first remember our pattern that we talked about the last couple of weeks that there's a pattern. Um, we have an intro. Jesus introduces something. He, he actually, uh, we, we notice a pattern of him saying um, something about himself that relates to the church. In this case, he says something about a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. We see either a commendation at the start or a criticism at the start. And then we see the opposite. We'll see a, either a commendation or a criticism as the next right. part. And then there's an exhortation, like, what must you do? Um, in response. To, in response. And, that, yeah. and that's the pattern. So... When we when we start off with with Pergamum, um, we 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 know historically a little bit about this place. We know from archaeological evidences. We know a little bit about this place, um, mm-hmm. and and Neil had the opportunity of of setting foot in where Pergamum was, and um, there's a lot historically about this this area, and yeah. uh, you mentioned as you walked into the city 
what's kind of the first things that you notice, Neil? Well, you look immediately straight up because it sits on top of a daggum mountain. (laughs) So the word Pergamum literally means height. (laughs) And so uh, it's a greatly elevated city. It's defensible, right? Um, But more than that, it's just something to behold, okay? Um, I want to introduce a thought here. I think the thought is that this is a city of power. And I think this will be important for us as we move forward and, and see kind of what the Christians are dealing with in this city with the issue of power, what has power. But yeah, the first and foremost thing is a city on top of the hill. It was the capital of the Pergamum empire, which in this city was willed to Rome. So it wasn't destroyed. No siege was laid against it. It was given away. And so this is um, the most famous place in all of Asia, actually, Pergamum. Um, it is called by Jesus Satan's throne room. So I think this is be a place that we try and consider and look at, right? Um, it was also a city that was gifted with the ability to perform capital punishment, which is key. Yeah. Um, to our introduction, um, it was known as the city that had the way of the sword. And so how about, how about this, Matt? Why don't you go back to, why don't you read Jesus's introduction and then we'll go forward from that with the, with the different things in the city. But I think this is an important, uh, place for us to stop. Yeah, absolutely. So revelation chapter two, uh, starting in verse 12, It says, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know Mm. where you live, where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name and and did not deny the faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. And we have the double-edged sword, the sharp double-edged sword yeah so here's our first um conflict of powers a war of two world powers if you will <laughs> you know one the eternal one temporary of course but war uh, of the worldview yeah war war of the worldview that's how you can't say that 10 times fast you I don't can't care say who you are. A, that's a good sermon though yeah but um <laughs> that'll preach um yeah so we have the city that is known as the way of the sword. They're able to deal capital punishment to lob off a Roman citizen's head. If they have been um, tried and found guilty and Jesus comes out the gate saying, I am the one who has the double edged sword. You know, I, I alone seat, you know, um, as the just judge. Um, and so here he's, it's almost like a flex statement. I feel like, like Jesus is flexing on like what they know. So the church in Pergamum is hearing and fearing because Antipas, this, this character has been martyred for his faith. Um, he's been killed by this sword, you know, and Jesus saying, no, I am the one, um, he, he I may have take your power. life, but he, you know, they may take your life, but they can't take your soul. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says, don't fear the one who can 
kill the body, but not destroy the soul, but fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. And so Jesus is, is saying this about himself in the statement and directly speaking to this city specifically with this statement. And this, I mean, so, honestly, when I, when I read these kind of things, man, I like to try to put myself in the place of that audience that's receiving this letter. I mean, mm -hmm. think about how scary it would be. I mean, you are at a place where it seems like the seat of Roman power um, in yeah. the region. And yep. is, there, is there anything that the Roman Empire can't do or can't reach? Mm. And so every aspect of your life is controlled. Um, how fearsome would that be when they tell you to deny Christ and or add, add something to Christ or say yeah. you can worship Christ, but you have to worship our God. These other things. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I would be scared. I mean, like, let's be honest. If people are getting killed, martyred totally. for believing in Jesus, um, this letter would not come at a better time and, mm -hmm. and remind me of an eternal perspective. Right. Yeah. So, I mean... So I think the next question is, so so that establishes, like Jesus is saying, no, I have power over this city, y'all. I carry the double-edged sword. Um, I deal justly and judge righteously. Um, so the next big like flag statement he says about Pergamum is that it's Satan's throne room. I know like, where why you would live. You, yeah, you live in Satan's throne room. Oh gosh, what a better what is there a better place to have a church? I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, think about that. Yeah. yeah, Satan's throne room. You are setting up shop. <laughs> yeah. You have a church. Yeah. And you may feel like you live in Satan's throne room, you know. Yeah. Um where we live for around Fort Hood, it's known as the great place. Um, and no one believes that. Everyone right. loathes this duty station. It seems like. Yeah. And and man, I think it's the greatest place to do ministry because it's yep. it is desperately wicked, and uh, like you know, it feels at times like Satan's throne room for sure. But here, let me walk through you know four uh, four reasons why um, people believe, or not people believe, but four reasons why we may uh, kind of come to grips with why uh, Jesus would call this place Satan's throne room. Okay. So um, the first thing you get to um, as a regular citizen is that everybody can get to in the entire city, because not all classes can go all the way to the top, but everyone can get to this place. And that's the theater. Okay. So the theater's carved out in the side of the mountain. Um, there's a temple to a specific God there that is the God of wine and theater and party. Um, I don't think the name of it matters uh, personally, but it's the idea. So everyone in the city can go to the theater, they can party, they can drink. Right outside the theater is this restaurant, if you will, where you Romans of this time would eat and drink wine until they threw up. Mardi Gras every would, day. Yeah, but what's more interesting is they would throw up and then eat more and drink more and then throw up again to eat more and drink more. So you can understand the riches and uh, reality of this city, right? So that's kind of the first reason he it would be called uh, Satan's throne room. Another reason is as you go up 
the hill, uh, if you were a part of that class, you could get up a little bit higher and you could first see the altar of Zeus. What's fascinating about the altar of Zeus as this incredible shrine, there's a lot of sacrifice that occurs here. But there is so much incense burned in this altar that it would actually create a haze over the top of the city um, uh, of smoke over the Acropolis. And we know that Zeus, of course, is the chief god of the Pantheon, right? And so, I mean, just picture the sight. It's almost like smog in a big city, but it's for worshiping this god uh, that this smog is produced. So that would be another reason. Uh, a, a third reason is Athena. The temple of Athena is in Pergamum. The city's actually been dedicated to Athena, who is the goddess of, you know, that promotes, you know, war and power and really the best way the Romans believe you can live. And so, you know, the city worships like this is the best way to do life, right? Um, it's the favorite goddess of Alexander the Great. And it, it represents really the power of the city itself. And so, you know, you could start by just imagining yourself being a Christian living in a tension between powers, right? Um, you got Athena, you got Zeus, you got the theater and the partying scene, right? And then you have um, more, right? Ne next, you have knowledge. One of the fascinating aspects of Pergamum is the second largest library in the world is here. It's actually the the library where they invent parchment paper to take books from scrolls to codex, which is why we have books today. So thanks, Pergamum. Um, <laughs> so with any technological advancement, you have more power. Like there's this pursuit of knowledge that's occurring here in this city. Uh, another reason I know I said four, but here I'm going to stop at five. But another reason is the temple to Hadrian is here. And so um, essentially when Octavian, who is Julius Caesar's quote unquote son, right? He defeats Mark Antony and Pergamum actually defied Antony um, and swore allegiance to Octavian. This is one of the fundamental reasons why the, Antony loses and Octavian then goes, elevates to Caesar, right? And so um, when Pergamum defies and swears allegiance to Octavian, who's the emperor when Jesus is born, um, they request, they ask Octavian, can we worship you as a god? And so Octavian, of course, being... Uh, a schemer like he was says, yes, of course you can worship me, but only if you also build a temple to Rome to worship also, because he didn't want to go higher than Rome, like for the people, right. To establish his divinity. And so, man, this incredible temple, much of it still there today is built to the worship of Octavian where it begins, but to worshiping Caesar and the ones that would come later in this time frame, Octavian is known as the savior of the world, the son of God, the one who will bring peace, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome through the world. And so he gains power and power by giving it away as if it's his to give and to take. And, 
you know, it's a fascinating thing, but this city's given their lives to uh, worshiping the emperor specifically. So that those are the reasons why I think uh, Jesus justly says, calls this city Satan's throne room. You can see this. There's this power struggle going on here. Well, and think about the peer pressure, right? I mean, everyone is doing it. We have people who are um, filled with debauchery and eating and drinking and and partying and and then we have all this worship. We have the what seems to be the most powerful at the time. Um, the Roman Empire is has a stronghold there. I mean, there and then the knowledge, right? If you could just get enough mm-hmm. knowledge, it could save you or move you forward in life. And so there's just all this pressure to conform, to conform to um, the society around you. Can you I hear all is, my dogs? Uh, we can hear them a little bit, but... It, that's okay. Sorry, my mother-in-law just got here and they going crazy. Sorry they ha- about that. They, ha- they happy. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a there's immense peer pressure. And I think that's why he keeps, he talks about, he brings up one of their martyrs, right? Antipas, yeah. my faithful witness. Mm. Um, and he's put to death among you, or who was put to death among you. So obviously it was a, a very um, visible death. And mm-hmm. where Satan lives, and then he he gives us the uh, the criticism, right? He says, "I have some things against you. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality." Now, mm-hmm. you know, if you know the Old Testament, you know the story. We're not going to jump into it today. Um, just know that he's reminding them of what happens when you um, eat meat sacrificed to idols and you basically conform to your society um, against Christ. And it seems that Jesus is levying a judgment against them because there are Christians who are saying this is the way you have to do it. And so it's keeping Jews from coming to Christ. That's right. Is really the levy here. Right. Because that stuff would be disgusting to them in many ways too. Mm-hmm. Um, then he brings up in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and Neil and I did a deep dive trying to figure out who these Nicolaitans were. Uh, we don't know much. Um, it's really only mentioned in this book here, revelation. And, but we do see kind of what they have been doing. They've been, um, conforming to society in many ways. Yeah. And, and they're, that's they're, what we have to be aware of. Yeah, they're maybe not the self-righteous hypocrites, but they are hypocrites in the sense of, uh, yeah, you know, Jesus is just another one of these gods to follow, and we're not going to be any kind of different. We're going to do all the same things the world says and does, um, and we're just going to add Jesus into this mix as well. That's right. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, uh, oh yeah, Jesus ahead. has some har- harsh words, right? What does he say in 16, Matt? Now he says, repent, otherwise mm. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And I think there's you know two things we want to point out. One is he's going to fight against them. So it's not the people who are, or the remnant that are actually doing what they're supposed to. It's right. those that are teaching these false things. Um, mm. And he's warning them to repent and he is going to come. 
and I, and Neil, bring up that sword um, stuff again because I think that's really a key to understanding this part of the passage. Yeah, totally. So um, again, this is the city that ha- that has been gifted with a certain status that there are not many that are in existence in the Roman Empire. And that is that they have the way of the sword. They have the ability to exercise capital punishment um, by using this double-edged sword to decapitate um, criminals. And so when Jesus says, I am the one who wields the double-edged sword, right? What does he say specifically? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then now we connect this here. I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. So yep. here again, there's, there's this kind of justice and judgment. It's really who has the power. Jesus saying, I have the power. That's it. He has the power. Um, mm. And then he says, you know, I'll come quickly. And then let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will yeah. also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Right. What in the world is that about, Neil? Yeah, so the white stone is uh, given to people in this time, day, and age, right, to mean that they were judged and they were declared innocent, free from condemnation. So you've been tried and you've been found not guilty or worthy of freedom. And so Jesus is saying, I will give the ones who conquer, the ones who remain faithful, the ones who live by the manna, which is a beautiful picture of, of I think, and uh, uh, we see in numbers, right? Um, of the children of God in the wilderness, Right, giving exactly what they need to survive um, by God Himself, and so He says, "I will give this white stone. I will declare you righteous." But the one who receives it knows that they're righteous, right? That they've been they've been made right. That they won't receive condemnation. So, Neil, what does that have to do with? today like what what can we take from this today oh yeah much (laughs) um i think i think one of the things we have to wrestle with as a church is is the reality that we are not meant to look like the rest of the world and you know um there's these churches out there they're called seeker sensitive um they they navigate themselves in such a way that they want to be as easy as possible. But the reality is it's not easy to follow Christ. Christ wouldn't say to count the cost if it was something easy or we do, you know, fickle in the moment or of emotions. No, like we're meant to pick up a cross and follow after Jesus. And it's Jesus who enables us to become these conquerors that he's talking about. Those who conquer Those who follow me, who remain faithful to me, I will show real power as I declare you innocent and I declare these condemned and wield my righteous sword against them. That's a massive picture, right? And that's really what he's getting down to the nuts and bolts of. And so, 
you know, for the for the church today and for the believer, like you're meant to be in the world, faithful to Jesus, not yeah. in the world and of it. Your church shouldn't look like it. It's not a Michael Jackson concert. Or whoever's popular today, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe All you Billy kids. Billie Eilish. I don't know. You know, you're not meant to look like this. You're uh, meant to look like me. You know. So, yeah. Man, I think I think this this is one of the biggest. I think a lot of us struggle with not being Nicolaitans. Yeah. You know. I, I, yeah. I think you're exactly right. I think um, some other implications are uh, the weapons of our warfare. Mm. Um, we cling to Christ, and that is our only hope. Um, I think that there's a temptation to seek after what we think would make us more, more successful, uh, whether it be um, knowledge, right? Pursuing yeah. knowledge. Uh, I, I think you had mentioned earlier, sending our kids to the best schools, um, mm. you know, having, yeah, we do this yeah, in the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, um, what, what's it called? You know, keeping up with the Joneses kind of yeah. mentality. Um, and, and we may do that in, in underhanded ways, not like we're overtly doing it, but we go to church and we see, uh, the pastor's kids all seem to behave a certain way. And so, they have that same tendency or we have a tendency to, to, to be harsher with our kids because they don't measure up to some standard um, that's invisible that we've put on them ourselves. Um, or we think that if we don't get them into this, um, the proper, if they don't go to college, they won't be successful in life. Um, yeah. And, and so we have to remember it's Christ who is in control. It's Christ mm. who carries the sword. He has life and death in his mouth. It is not mm. us. And and our job is to cling to the cross, even if we live in Satan's throne room. Um, and I think there's an encouragement there that there's a remnant. Because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't say Jesus is going to come and wipe out all of the people from Pergamum. It says he is going to remove the ones that are teaching these false things. Um, mm. and, I, and I think that's important for us as as we consider the world that we live in today that we we consider America where it seems like the wrong people have the largest voices right we yeah. all we hear about the crazy left wing pastors and the crazy right wing pastors just saying these just weird things that have nothing to do with the christian faith and it can be discouraging um so yeah. uh, for me that that's a great comfort for me is that that Christ will come and he will mm. execute judgment and our job is not to be the one carrying a sword and trying to chop people up, um, but to cling to the truth and to be yeah. um, preachers of the truth. Yeah, divisiveness is fruitful only when Jesus is your master. Yeah. And so, man, like at the end of the day, uh, I think what all this is coming down to for the church in Pergamum is who will be their master. And because uh, there's, you know, there's Satan bringing everything under the sun um, to try and defer them away from Christ as their master. And so like for us in the church, you know, and for a pastor, let me just speak to you guys for a minute for the pastor. The, the, the aim is not pragmatism. The aim is to follow Jesus. Okay. 
And so, man, you are to lead your people into the pursuit of Christ-likeness, into the pursuit of loving him in all things, loving our neighbors as a result of loving our Savior. And so, man, it's not it's not our task to be the biggest, greatest show in town and to lead our people that way. No, 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 no. Our task is to follow Jesus and let him be our master in all things, in all aspects of our lives, and to lead out of that place and that position. And for the Christian, you know, uh, and uh, or the layperson, if you will, man, our task is to have Jesus alone as our master and not to get stuck and distracted by all the Satan has put around you is to remain focused on him because he is the true one with the power. Yeah. You cannot find power in any other place. You will not be a conqueror if he is not the one leading you, period, the end. And this is, if you found yourself in the trap of running in the rat race of following some other master or some other power source, um, man, Jesus would call you to repentance. So repent, turn away from it, turn towards Christ. So I implore you as Christ would implore you to repent and to follow him. And, and this brings so much joy. Um, mm. I, I think it's hard sometimes to paint the picture of the relief that comes with not running the race that everyone else is running. Um, yeah. the, you know, the race for success or the race for money or the race for that better house or that nicer car or, or whatever it is that you're chasing. Um, when we, when we just cast that off and chase after Christ, um, our joy becomes so much more complete. And, um, and that's yeah. encouraging to me. Yeah. And this, this is what Paul calls us to, to run that kind of race, right? You know, I was in uh, Aphrodisias, and uh, there's this massive um, stadium there for sport. And uh, Brian Haynes, a pastor of Bay Area Church, he encouraged us to go down into this place and to and to picture yourself running this race and laying down whatever weight, whatever is dragging you back, um, whatever entanglement you may have and literally we all just walked or run or whatever our own race and and i'm i was thinking about like man jesus is like in this grandstand right and he's it he's the only one in attendance looking down at me cheering me to go and to just follow him to run that race and he's the one who crowns us with victory um or in for the church of pergamum right He's the one who condemns or declares innocent based upon whether you're running the race that he's called you to or not, you know? That's so, it. yeah. Well, guys, that's all we have uh, for today with the, the Satan's throne room and the church in yes. Pergamum. Uh, and we just want to encourage you again, man, be, re be in repentance, follow after Christ and remember that he is the one who restores power and restoration of power leads us to this restoration of shalom or peace that we all desperately need. And that peace is found alone in Jesus. So, man, we want to encourage you in that direction. Guys, thanks for listening. Subscribe. Uh, hit the like button. Leave a review. Um, it would be extremely helpful for us. And if you have enjoyed the podcast today, go ahead and share it on whatever social media you may have. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Yellow Matt.
we out.